Our reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and in the Pew Bibles, that's page 1149. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many, to, many be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess the knowledge, but some through former associations with idols. Eat food has sorry, eat food as ready offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no more worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that th this right of ours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an old temple, we will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to, it, to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother of whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, then it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This be the word of the God. Good evening, everyone. Good to see you. Um, we've got a load of mics up here, um, just in case. Uh, you should have a sheet in front of you. We've got the Bible passage on one side of the sheet and the outline on the other side of the sheet. I do apologize. Um, some of the words, and I mean literally some of the words, do not appear on the left-hand side of the sheet. Um, blame Jordan Reed. That is entirely her fault. I had nothing to do with it. Blame her. Is that all right, Jordan? You don't mind? You wanted me to say that, didn't you? You wanted to take full responsibility. Anyway, it was my fault. I do apologize. I don't know how to use a photocopier and much less a computer. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we've moved away from 5, 6, and 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7, which was to do with sex, sexual intercourse, the, the right context for all of that stuff. We've moved on to food and idols. This may not be as interesting. Maybe you're here for another installment of something like the content of chapters 5, 6, and 7, and you've come tonight and he's going to be talking about food. How boring is that? We're in chapter 8 because chapter 8 reveals just exactly the spiritual temperature of the Christians in Corinth. The spiritual temperature and exactly how mature they are. Are they mature? Are they spiritual? They believed that they were spiritual. They believed that they were spiritually mature. But actually, Paul has revealed, and the way that he did in the previous section, Paul has revealed they're not that mature. They think of themselves on a different plane where the reality is they're not there, really. So why don't we pray as we look at chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians? Father God, we thank you that you love us, that you've revealed yourself, you've pulled the curtain back. We know who you are, you have told us, and you have shown us in Jesus. Father, we pray that we would be spiritually mature, 
we pray that we would grasp what is here. Please put our thinking aright. Please shape our hearts to love you, to know you, and to serve you more, that we may obey what is in these words. Give us understanding. Give us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Corinth was full of religion, absolutely full of religion. You go from one street to another street, and you'll see a symbol of that religion. It's like walking in any street in Belfast, you will see a symbol of our religious background. Church after church after church, in street after street after street. You take a walk around Corinth, and you will see temple after temple after temple. You'll see idol after idol after idol. It was an extremely religious city. Various gods were worshipped. And various gods were worshipped through sex, as we saw over the last couple of weeks, and food. Particularly, the food that was sold, that had been offered to the idols, to the gods worshipped in those various temples. And what happened was, if you wanted to worship, well, you'd bring a sacrifice. And that sacrifice could be anything at all. Could be grain, could be money, could be an animal, and the animal would be slaughtered. And in order to keep the thing going, they would sell food. Some of this slaughtered food that had been offered in sacrifice. Some of that would be recycled, as it were, to fill a burger, to be put on the plate. And that was an act of worship. As those who worshipped in those temples consumed, as they'd imbibed, the food in front of them, they were worshiping because the food itself was offered to the idol. So they would take a steak, and before you consume it, you would nod to the idol. You would pray to the idol. You would hold it up in front of the idol. And that would be considered the continuing sacrifice of worship to that particular idol. And Corinth was full of this, absolutely full of it. Now, this was one of the topics that they, the Corinthians, had written to Paul about. Remember that other topic, chapter 7? It is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with his wife, chapter 7, verse 1. They thought by doing that that there would be more spiritual, chapter 7, verse 1. You may have it in the Bible in front of you. You'll see it there. They thought there were being more spiritual by abstaining from those kinds of relationships. Because they had this messed up idea that the body was bad. And therefore, even in marriage, there was no place for that. Because it was less spiritual to engage in that. That's chapter 7. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. It clearly written to Paul. They clearly written this concern. There clearly had been some kind of dispute in the church in Corinth. There clearly had been some kind of confusion and probably argumentation going on in the church in Corinth. Arguments brother to brother. And so Paul writes in response, 
concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. What, what, what is going on in Corinth where there's argument over knowledge? Is it that someone has a better degree than someone else, more degrees than someone else, that they've got a bachelor's, a master's, a postgrad, a PhD? Is that what the argument is? Well, in a way, yes. Not the accolades and the degrees and the pieces of paper you pay for, sorry, that you earn from Queen's University or Jordanstown. But spiritually, that's how they thought of themselves. That was the typical modus operandi, how they thought, the religious Corinth thought. They thought that true spirituality was measured by knowledge, what you know. And this was a big deal in Corinth. Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, this Greek word, gnosis, knowledge, the G is silent. Gnosis was one of those sought-after commodities. And for the different religious sects within Corinth, the way of ascertaining your maturity was by how much gnosis you had, how much knowledge you had, how much of the particular text of the religion that you knew, how much you're able to articulate it, how much you're able to explain it to others. That was a marker of true spirituality. If you had little gnosis, you weren't very spiritual. And this was the debate in Corinth. But the Christians had been told by Paul that they did possess knowledge. See, Paul came, he arrived in Corinth, and he preached Christ and him crucified, the true wisdom, the true knowledge of God. And they'd received that message willingly, and that message is the message that I trust you receive, that Jesus Christ died on a cross willingly for your sin, my sin, that Jesus willingly went there and stretched out his hands and said, it is finished. That is the work of God's redemption of a sinful humanity. And Paul preached this to them, and they came to know God. But, of course, like everything else, like the previous chapters, they took something that was good and they tried to outdo one another. They tried to better themselves over and against the other. They were not loving. They were selfish. They were show-offs. They prided themselves in this knowledge. Paul obviously said to them, I'm going to give you the knowledge of the true and the living God. Imagine that. But some of them in Corinth, in the church in Corinth, took that knowledge and they thought, ha-ha, I'm going to do better than John. I'm going to do better than Jane. Sorry, I can't really think on the spot of other more interesting names, John and Jane. I do apologize. I'm going to do better than them. I'm going to know more than them because that is the mark of true spirituality. 
Well, how does Paul deal with that? Remember, Paul is always writing to the heart. He reads between the lines that the Christians in Corinth are losing the plot, not that they were denying that Jesus Christ existed, that he didn't rise from the dead, that he didn't die for their sins. They didn't deny any of that stuff. Rather, instead of measuring how they looked at the world through the cross, they looked at the world through the world's values, and they looked at the cross, applying the world's values to the cross. They thought it was weak, pathetic, meager. Paul was weak, pathetic, and meager. It wasn't particularly attractive, the cross, the message of the cross. But they've been given the wisdom and the knowledge of God, Christ and Him crucified. But what did they do with that thing? They took the knowledge and began to look down their noses one to the other. And Paul deals now with the dangers and the benefits of this knowledge. And you see how he deals with it in the first few verses. Concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. They've obviously written this. Paul, you've told us all of us possess knowledge. So that's quoted back to them. All of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, in a very commas, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Do you see where Paul is going here? That the so-called knowledge that they were so valuing wasn't loving. In fact, the knowledge was just puffing up someone's opinion of themselves. You know those sorts of people. Maybe you know some Christians who are really very annoying. Oh, yes, I've read all of Calvin's Institutes, and I know. You know those types? Oh, yes, I know what the fifth book of Hezekiah says. Oh, yes, you know those type? It's a completely unloving action to take your knowledge to try and show off and, and, and say to them, do you know, you don't really know as much as I do. I am clearly more spiritual than you are. This is what's going on in Corinth. But Paul says that kind of knowledge is just arrogance. That kind of knowledge is just empty. That kind of knowledge is not loving. It's actually more important to be loving than knowledgeable. Do you ever think about that guy? It's much more important to love someone than to know loads of things. I guess you'd agree about that, agree with that in any sphere of life. It's much better to love than to know. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. The issue wasn't really about food. The issue was about idolatry. Look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, 
and that there is one, that there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are, are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This was a pluralistic society, a religiously pluralistic society, a polytheistic society where there are many gods represented in their temples and by their idols. And the Corinthians used to imagine that, the Christians used to imagine that behind every one of those idols, contained within every one of those temples, that there was a reality, that there was a God, an actual God, small g, God. That's how religion worked back then. There was a God for virtually every department of your life. There was a God for your career, a God for your family, a God for your love life, a God for dot, 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 you name it. There was a God for it. And in order for that aspect of your life or your existence to be fulfilled or to be fruitful or to be um, kind of exemplary, you had to keep that particular God on your side. So if something was going wrong in that particular aspect of your life, you'd go and do a sacrifice in that God's temple. You, you, you would find a way to appease that God, to make that God happy. That's how religion worked back then. And as I said, Corinth was full of these idols, full of these gods. That's how it happened. Now, you might think to yourself, oh, that's just a bit primitive. That's just a bit early. I mean, that's a very simple way to look at life. Of course, we'd never do anything like that, have temples for one God and then another temple for another God and another temple for another God and live in fear of those particular gods. We would never do that. I wonder, would we never do that? I, I think we do do that. So we've a God of shopping, a God of material possessions. We saw that on Friday, and that God communicates to us through the various emails with Black Friday deals. And in order to keep that God satisfied, in order to quench our thirst, in order not to get on the wrong side of that God, well, we buy and buy and buy and buy. We fill our houses with stuff, and we occasionally worship at the temple of Victoria Square, Amazon.co.uk. Occasionally. We have a God of physique, and how do we look? And we worship occasionally, hasn't really happened to me, but we worship occasionally at the temple gym. Beauticians. Hairdresser. It's a long time since I was there, obviously. We do have gods. We do worship them in their temples. Popularity, fame, friendship, relationship. Our mind is a factory of idols, keeping, producing idols, idol after idol, and we worship them, and we live in fear of them, and we sacrifice to them. The small g gods. 
How does Paul react to that? This is where if you're a Christian, you're going to get into trouble. This is where if you're a Christian, in the plethora of religious views, in the pluralistic, relativistic world that we're living in, and increasingly so, this is where you're going to get into trouble if you are a Christian. Because the only option for the Christian is to say that every one of the gods that's worshipped, every one of the religious expressions, every one of the imaginations of our minds, every single one of them, they're all lies, apart from the fact that there is one God, that Jesus Christ is God that Jesus Christ is the only one who reveals the true and the living God, capital G. Jesus Christ, every other religious claim is wrong. They can't all be right. What does Paul say? Because remember, this was the pluralistic society, first century pluralistic society. And this is where it gets difficult, doesn't it? Because we're accused. Christians are accused of proselytism. Christians are accused of arrogance. Christians are accused of narrowness and exclusivism. But where do they get that from? They get it from Jesus. Remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Big claims for a first century Jewish carpenter. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claimed that about himself. The apostle Peter also claimed that about Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven or earth by which men may be saved except that of Jesus Christ. every page of the Bible, you will see this. There is one true God. Let's have a look here at verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and you've got visual evidence of that idea right through your city, Corinthians, although there may be so-called so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Do you see that? This will get you into trouble if you express this opinion. This will get you into trouble if you're definite about this opinion. This will put you on the out in culture, and society, you will be addressed as narrow-minded, even a fundamentalist. But this is Paul's view. How can Paul say this? Well, he's got a resurrection as proof. He's got a resurrection as the base of his confidence that Jesus is the only true God. He's got a man who's not in his grave, who's been raised from the grave, who is alive, and who commands all people everywhere to repent, the man, the Lord Jesus. 
Do you see what he says about God the Father? He says about Jesus. But for us, there is one God, and I've put it here. You can see how the, the, the language matches. Under point number two, there is one God and Father from whom are all things, for whom we exist. But for us, he says it again, there is one God, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, through whom we exist. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof of that. But every other religious claim in the world, now get this, is wrong. So how does that relate to this food business and their so-called knowledge? Well, have a look. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with the idols. And that would have been everyone, basically, in the church in Corinth. I mean, it was, it was the way you did religion. It's the way you did life. You just did it in the way that you go to the supermarket, you go to the temple. It was just part of life, part and parcel of life. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. Remember, this is the religious system of the temples, the religious sacrificial system of the temples. This is how they made their money. This food offered to an idol in worship of that idol. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. What is going on is that there are those who really think their conscience, who really think that this is continuing, even though it's not intended. And eating that food is just so representative of the way that they used to live that they couldn't get their heads around it. And the issue of division in the church in Corinth was that some Christians were happily eating this particular food sacrificed to idols. And it was hurting other Christians. Look at verse number eight. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Food will not change your religious status. Food will not change how spiritual you are or how not spiritual you are. Different religions around the world have a thing about food. Even Christians at times have a thing about food, so they'll not eat this, they'll not eat this particular type of food, they'll not eat at this particular time of the year. We've got a thing about food, thinking that somehow it affects the soul. Jesus teaches that it doesn't affect the soul. Mark chapter 7. No food is worse for you than other foods. And Paul says, he says the same thing. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Saying this, remember last week, the way Paul balances singleness and marriedness. He says they're both the same. Just be content, which wherever you find yourself, just be content. Do not be one thing desiring the other thing. If you are circumcised, you remember this from the middle of chapter 7? If you are circumcised, don't desire not to be circumcised. It's kind of difficult to reverse that process. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But here's where the true level of their spirituality, of their devotion, of their godliness is seen. 
Verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? In other words, if you're eating food and you don't have an issue with it, your conscience is clear, your mind is clear and all of this stuff. If you're eating that food, but someone who, this is a big deal, looking at you and seeing you chomping away at your steak or whatever it is, at your burger, whatever it is, that's in the middle of the temple and this food has clearly been offered to an idol somewhere and someone sees you doing that and then they get hurt because their conscience, their conscience is weak. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Was it their weakened body? <laughs> no, their weakened soul. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food to idols? And so by your knowledge, that is your knowledge that of course it's not to idols, that there's no such thing as an idol, there's no such thing as any other God, only Jesus Christ, the true and the living God, that's the knowledge that they have. So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Do you see what's going on here? They think they're being spiritual, but actually they're being immature. So Paul says, do not do this because you're destroying a weak person. It's hard for us to get our heads around this. We don't have this kind of system today. We don't have this kind of way of going today. It's hard for us to get our heads around it. But think of this. By doing something that you know is not wrong, by doing that thing, Maybe someone else, as they observe you doing that thing, whose conscience is weak, who has a difficulty with that, maybe they're being hurt. Maybe they're being denied the gospel in some way. Verse 11, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Let's take the example of alcohol, Christians and alcohol. For some Christians, imbibing alcohol is sinful. Taking a drink with an alcoholic content is sinful for some Christians. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say that it is sinful. We must sit on the line of the Bible and not go beyond it, below it, around it, or reject it. We must sit on the line. What does the Bible say about alcohol? Well, the Bible says about alcohol that wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler, and anyone who is led astray by them is a fool. Now, the Bible does not say that alcohol is sinful. But for some people who perhaps have a past with alcohol, a difficulty with alcohol, have seen the damage that it does, and it does do damage. Let me tell you, I have buried three alcoholics in my life. Liver gave up. I have seen the harmful effects of alcohol. 
It's wrecked people, wrecked families, wrecked lives, whole lives, whole families. I've seen it. And so those, if some have become Christians from that kind of background, to see you, who knows that the Bible doesn't say that alcohol is sinful to imbibe, to see you swigging it back, that might hurt them. That might break something in them. It might damage their trust in Christ and their fellowship with you. And even though you have freedom to do it, you can, of course, do it. But are you looking over your shoulder as to who's watching you? You might think, well, I've got every right to do it. I'm going to stand in my rights. I'm fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Well done, you. How does Paul see you? Verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience. When it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul, you see what Paul is saying? See, he has compassion and care and concern for the weaker brother. And weaker doesn't mean less strong. Weaker means those for whom something like this is a big deal. And he's conveying his measure of love by abstaining from meat. Of course he knows he can eat meat. It's not sinful. He can walk into the temple and just pick up a burger. But he'll not do it if it hurts someone. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Where would you rather be? Would you rather be on the side of those who will exercise their conscience, exercise their freedom, knowing that what they're doing is not sinful, would you rather be like that? Or would you rather be in, well, look, ask the question humbly, lovingly, am I hurting you? Taking time to listen? Is it an issue for you? If it is, I will abstain. I will hold back because freedom means a freedom to love. St. Augustine said this, freedom freedom to love for the Christian. We're free to love. So, this evening, what about you? How's it going? In the measure of your maturity, how are you measuring it? Is it by knowledge? Is it by the number of divinity degrees that you've collected? Is it by the number of books that you have, that you've read, not just possessed, that are on your bookshelf? Is that how you measure your spirituality? Is it by the number of prayer meetings that you attend? What is it? Well, the measurement is love, concern. Not standing on your rights, and we'll see more of this in chapter 9. Not standing on your rights, rather lovingly, caringly, compassionately loving the person who is weak and for whom there is difficulty in your behavior. Even though you're free. Of course, there's no idols, Paul says. Of course, this meat being sacrificed to idols is an imagination of the sinful human heart the simple human mind, the religious way, before you became Christians, the religious way, that that doesn't exist. Of course, it is a nonsense. However, if for someone, seeing me eat a divine burger, shall we call it, 
stumbling their conscience. I'm not going to eat meat anymore. So what about you this evening? As you measure how deeply Christian you are, as you measure how loving you are, how do you see yourself? Are you putting yourself out for others? Because Christ died for them. That's the measure.